Good morning, this is Laura Huey and uh, you've joined me on Sociology 4451 here at the University of Western Ontario. That's an advanced seminar on policing. I'm carrying on with the previous module on new policing strategies and today I want to focus on focused deterrence. And I also want to introduce my co-host this morning, Lucy, and uh, Chewbacca's around here somewhere. He's sleeping. Hallelujah. Lucy, of course, has been bribed, so she'll be quiet for about three seconds. All right, let's get started. By the way, if you have been uh, listening to previous podcasts, if you will, or previous uh, tape sessions, you know that uh, we are on day whatever of COVID-19. I am on day five or six of the regular H1N1 flu. Feeling better today, but we'll see how I how I do. Got handy dandy bucket of caffeine nearby, so hopefully we'll get through this. All right, so focus deterrence is the topic for today. And this, as I say, is a newer policing strategy, though new in the context of policing, not necessarily new for, for some of, uh, in relation to the ages of some of my listeners. I always have to remember to say that because when we're talking about programs that have been around for 20 years, that's not necessarily new for some people. All right, definition. Hmm. Hang on, I had to have a slug of coffee there. <clears> Throat's still a little dry from this stupid flu. All right. So, focused deter uh, deterrence is a form of problem-oriented policing that uses deterrence-based strategies. Essentially, it uses a combination of disincentives and incentives to try to motivate people into moving away from criminal behavior. I always use the classic example of the carrot and the stick approach. So the stick is a disincentive and the carrot is an incentive. And literally every single time I do this, a cat comes out of the woodwork to scratch something. Okay. It's it. They're tempting me. They're, they're tempting me to start screaming. Stop. Okay. So I'm talking about the carrot and the stick. And as a criminologist, there's an entire set of theories, rational choice theory, which is sort of based around this idea that human behavior is not super complex. People are motivated by pleasure and the avoidance of pain. This goes way back to the early 1800s and a guy called Caesarea, Caesar Beccaria, Caesarea, Caesar Beccaria. And, um, we see this in a lot of behavior. Sometimes people say, well, how can it be rational behavior if, you know, they're, if the person's intoxicated, they're on drugs or over, over consumed alcohol. And, um, and I kind of get that point, you know, we don't always behave what appears to be super rationally. However, that said, in, and also we can look at certain types of criminal behavior in which people just, you just sit there and you shake your head and you think, what the hell were you thinking? Um, clearly you weren't thinking at all or you wouldn't have done it. And my favorite example of this, and this is one that I, I saw, oh, I want to say like 20 years ago, this was an actual case where a, uh, person, uh, decided that he was going to rob a bank. He decided to pick a very busy bank because it had lots of money and it would be very, uh, have lots and lots of money at a busy time, at a busy point in the week. So he picked a Friday afternoon about 3 p.m. to rob a bank in downtown Vancouver. Already you're thinking, this is not gonna go well. 
But his, his rationale was, you know, there'd be lots of money there because he'd be busy. And uh, his further rationale for how he was going to commit this crime was he wanted to avoid being uh, identified, so he went in half naked. He wore pants, but he decided he wasn't going to wear any identifying clothing. And of course, a half-naked man walking into a bank in downtown Vancouver in the middle of a busy Friday afternoon is going to be noticed. Needless to say, he was caught pretty quickly. On the surface, that doesn't look like very rational behavior. However, he rationalized his behavior, and the term we use for that is bounded rationality, or it's a term that has been used for it. Just because something doesn't appear to be rational to the outside observer doesn't mean it wasn't rational to that person. So even so-called irrational behavior for the individual is still rational. Just like, you know, you, you go to a bar, you have too many cocktails, you're dancing, see somebody that looks cute, give them a little snog, and then, uh, you know, sober up and went, oh my God, who have I been snogging? and think, oh no, that was not a great decision. Well, at the time it seemed like a great decision, didn't it? So where am I going with all this? I'm talking about focused deterrence as, as a model that's not only based on problem-oriented policing, but it's based on the sort of rational choice view of how the world uh, supposedly operates or how human behavior operates. And um, again, it's focused on giving people incentives to de desist or away from criminality and disincentives to help to help expedite that process. And what does focused deterrence do? It focuses on specific types of uh, offenders and or offender groups. So Bragg and Weisberg describe it as this way. In the focused deterrence approach, the emphasis is not only on increasing the risk of offending, making it a less attractive choice. That was my little, I, I'm doing air brackets here, um, but also decreasing opportunity structures for violence, deflecting offenders away from crime, increasing the collective efficacy of communities, and increasing the legitimacy of police actions. For those of you that are big proponents of upstream solutions to crime, because people say, oh, well, policing can't cure poverty, it can't cure uh, family dysfunction, and so on. Well, this type of approach addresses some of those uh, community-based concerns. And again, I talked about deterrence theory. Uh, the idea behind deterrence theory is that certainty and swiftness and severity equals deterrence. This goes back, as I said, to Begari Begaria. Now, I've, I've completely screwed up his name twice now. Begaria. Uh, and this idea that, um, you know, as I say, individuals are rational actors who choose who choose opportunities that allow them to maximize benefits and minimize their costs. However, if you want to deter people, you have to increase the likelihood that people will get caught, the swiftness of the legal response, and the severity of the punishment. Though we now have a lot more research suggests that we can actually divert people uh, with less severe punishment and um, and also increase increase incentives to try to motivate people positively away from uh, criminal offending. So what is, let me give you a little background on what a uh, focused deterrence approach looks like. Essentially what happens is, so for, um, say we're going to work with gangs. And by the way, focused deterrence 
This model uh, was tried early in the 1990s in Boston with a, a program called Operation Ceasefire. And it's since been replicated in a variety of places throughout the states, and I'll talk about that shortly. The idea is, is that police and prosecution work together to identify a list of offenders that they want to target, let's say a particular uh, gang. They bring them in, and um, they bring them in there's a, uh, to have a discussion about, about their behavior. There's a working group that has already been set up that includes uh, police, prosecution, community services, nonprofit sector, uh, community organizations, social services, potentially education, and so on. And that working group gets together with offenders to communicate to those offenders directly um, that, uh, you know, your behavior is not acceptable. We're going to give you some new rules around your behavior. And if you violate, if we catch you, we are going, you are going to be subjected to proactive law enforcement. We're going to throw the book at you. That's a disincentive. However, and also as well, in terms of disincentives, community members speak up, including family members, addressing the impact of the offender's lifestyle and their behavior on family and friends. This is like, I always use the example. If you've ever seen the TV show Intervention, where the family gathers around and talks about um, the individual and why they need to go uh, to rehab and deal with their addiction and so on. It's a little bit like that. Um, you know, we're, we're trying to motivate people by talking about not only what the impact of their actions are on them, but what they are on their family and, in a, and on the larger community. So we're, you know, we, we're trying to say this is, this is not cool and you're hurting other people. So that, those are some of the disincentives. Some of the incentives are employment opportunities, training and education opportunities, work opportunity, oh, work and employment are the same thing. Um, counseling opportunities and so on to try to deal with some of the issues that underlie criminal behavior such as lack of opportunity in, in employment. So as I said, one of the first uh, programs was launched in Boston and was Operation Ceasefire and it was targeting gun violence in the city by that city's gangs. And it's also known as pulling levers because the idea and the idea behind pulling levers is you try multiple different levers to try to see if you can get some leverage on the person to change their behavior. And again, when Operation Ceasefire started up, the idea is a multi-agency coalition to identify the scope of the problem, those offenders that are in, involved that need to be targeted, and the resources needed to tackle the issue. So gang members, as I said, were notified pretty quickly that their behavior was not going to be tolerated. Uh, researchers suggest that this strategy of face-to-face -face meetings it actually had a significant impact on altering offenders' perceptions of risk in relation to getting caught and the possible consequences of an arrest. Those face-to-face -face meetings, they argue, crucial, critical component. It also bolstered the credibility of those delivering the messages when law enforcement actually did follow through. This goes back again to classical deterrence theory. You have to actually follow through. This is like um, dealing with me, me and my dogs. When I tell them they're being bad and then I give them a treat, that's not a good follow through. And not surprisingly, I have badly behaved dogs. 
So how is ceasefire different from standard police crackdowns? Because we've seen police agencies, you know, initiate saturation policing projects where they target an area, uh, blanket that area with tons of visible deterrence. We've seen crackdowns where they just go in and just arrest everybody that's associated with a particular gang or other uh, type of criminal activity. How's it different? Well, it's different because it combined that sort of hard edge law enforcement effort with the soft side of focused deterrence being community and social service work. The combination of the two is what makes this significantly different with lots and lots of emphasis, by the way, on deterring people or getting people to desist through giving them other opportunities. Did ceasefire work? To determine if pulling levers were criminologist Anthony Braga conducted a series of evaluations of different aspects of the program. And in 2001, Braga reported the Operation Ceasefire had actually generated a 63% reduction in the monthly average of gang-related killings, a 32% decrease in the number of shots fired calls to police, 25% reduction in the number of monthly gun assaults, in later work, Braga and his colleagues observed that ceasefire had not only reduced violence among those gangs that were the target of the operations, but it also had an effect on gangs that were not targeted. Why? Because they saw what was going on and they were like, well, wait a second, this doesn't look like a very good viable option for us if the police are going to crack down. We got to figure out something else here. <laughs> There goes Lucy. She is to trying to deter crime in our local neighborhood by hanging out my window, barking at anybody walking by. One second, I've got to go use some bribery. Be right back. Come here. Okay, yes, kids, that was the sound of me practicing exactly what I just said not to do, which is rewarding bad behavior. Okay, so where was I here? Oh, in later work, so I'm saying that it, it um, I've used the term displacement or diffusion of benefits in the previous, uh, in the previous section of this module. I would argue that what we're seeing with this deterrent effect with other groups is a diffusion of benefits. So you've targeted one uh, group and it uh, created benefits in relation to decreasing crime among other groups. Yay. So the suggestion from Braga and colleagues is that focused deterrence programs can positively impact behaviors of other groups. Other researchers have cautioned, however, that these and similar other findings from studies in other cities are typically inferred from citywide counts of youth homicide and it's, um, that any direct impact has yet to be proven. So we're talking about how um, we're looking at crime stats more generally. If you really want to do really good quality outcome research, then you've got to do some interviews with people that are involved and potentially are either still in the gang and active or have desisted and talk and find out what whether it worked why it worked, why it didn't work. 
That said, of course, when there's any study that or any um, initiative in the U.S. that's been semi-successful, gets replicated. Uh, and similar programs in the U.S. have been implement, implemented in L.A., Stockton, California, Cincinnati, Minneapolis, New Orleans, Chicago, and Indianapolis. I think Newark as well, and Philadelphia, I believe, might have had one, but Newark definitely did. Um, while the focus of many of these initiatives has been on reducing gun violence, other cities have tackled, uh, attempted to use this approach to tackle other types of offending, such as robberies, open-air drug markets, and more recently, domestic violence, which I think is a very interesting sort of take on this. In 2012, Anthony Braga and David Weisberg published a, uh, a systematic review of 11 studies on focused deterrence. You can find this online through the Campbell uh, Collaboration. Of the 11 published studies, they concluded these pr programs produce medium to moderate effects on crimes measured, such as gun assaults or homicides. Only one study, and yes, I was correct, it's in Newark, did not produce statistically significant results. Oftentimes, when we implement these types of programs, there are issues with program implementation. And that's one of the things that you have to consider carefully when you're doing any kind of evaluation on whether or not these types of initiatives work. You, I've mentioned in a previous uh, discussion, my, my friend Jerry Ratcliffe and the implementation of a foot patrol study in Philadelphia and having to make sure that people actually do what it is that you think that they're going to do out on the front lines. That said, going back to Brog and Weisberg, here's what they found overall of the 11 studies. They observed a 63% reduction in youth homicides in Boston, 44% reduction in gun assault incidents in Lowell, Massachusetts, 42% reduction in gun homicides in Stockton, a 35% reduction in homicides of criminally active group members in Cincinnati, 34% reduction in total homicides in Indianapolis, 55% reduction in illegal drug possession incidents in Nashville, 22% reduction in nonviolent offenses in Rockford, Illinois, and a 37% reduction in homicide in Chicago, as well as significant short-term reductions in violent crime in Los Angeles. Of course, we now know that that reduction in Chicago did not last because um, the resources that were put into the Chicago pro program were not sustained. And... Uh, not surprisingly, within a few short years, what we ended up seeing was, and I've mentioned this in previous classes, double-digit homicides on a weekend in Chicago. And I think the worst weekend I recall was about 53 homicides, and that was that was gun uh, gang-related gun activity. I've talked, as I said previously, about diffusion effects. Braga and Weisberg note that two of the studies examined in Nashville and Los Angeles also reported crime reductions beyond the immediate areas treated, which of course we call diffusion effects. In Nashville, there were fewer calls for service in areas near the drug market that was targeted. And in LA, there were reductions in violent crime in areas immediately adjacent to those areas that were targeted. So, some, full, some key considerations if other agencies are thinking about using a focused deterrence approach. One, be site specific. Oh, here goes Lucy again. Lucy, come, come here. You know what we're gonna do? We're gonna bring Lucy up. Come on, come on, come here. 
Okay. Uh, here we go. Lucy's up at the microphone. You can't see her, but she's here. She'll probably start barking and growling soon. Right, girl? Good girl. Okay, so what are some considerations? Again, if you're thinking about the possibility of implementing a focused deterrent approach, what I what uh, a number of groups, including myself, I'm not a group, well, I am now with Lucy, um, but CANSEV and the Center for Evidence-Based Crime Policy would highly recommend that you be site-specific. Not all of the same strategies used in one city will necessarily work in another. Therefore, programs have to be tailored to the specific city. I, I've, I've mentioned this before, but police agencies have a tendency to engage in something called naive policy transfer. That is the idea that if a program or policy or strategy worked in another city, that we can just wholesale import it into, say, Moose Jaw, without any consideration for the culture, the history, the geography, the resources, the embedded political relationships, the yada, yada, yada of Moose Jaw. And uh, it might not necessarily work. So you have to tailor... If you're going to adopt an intervention, you've got to tailor it to your specific site. Interagency collaboration is point number two, is a key consideration. For this type of program to work, police agencies have to engage early and meaningfully with other services, service providers. Not only to respond to the issue, but to identify and target problems. And all aspects of the partnership have to be supportive for it to be effective. So if it's one sort of group that's like, you know, taking the lead, sometimes that does happen because that particular agency has more capacity to engage in the work. However, the other partners have to have meaningful input. Otherwise, people are just going to tune out and drop out and walk away. A third consideration, build sustainability. Results have to be achieved. Uh, results are typically achieved, you know, fairly quickly once you put something in place and and it's starting and you, you know everybody's working hard to, to drive down those numbers but what happens is over time these programs can be difficult to, to sustain uh, Larry Sherman talks about this when he talks about um, uh, targeting testing and tracking this is the tracking component you've implemented something you've shown that it works but over time you stop tracking what you're doing and then the sustainability piece, which you didn't plan for, starts to crumble. And by the sustainability piece, here's the thing. A lot of times when these initiatives get started, you've got some very passionate, dedicated people that are driving it. Well, when those people retire, quit, leave, get transferred, move on to something else, or the funding isn't sustained, and so they can't continue to participate at the same level or even at all, this really threatens your collaboration. And it ultimately, it threatens the long-term viability of your program. And I mentioned Chicago. Chicago is a great example of what I'm talking about, where it's great to have all that enthusiasm, but you need to have sustainability, not just beyond the program outcome measures deadline, so two, three years, or even one year in some cases. By the way, this is the cutest damn thing you've ever seen. Lucy's actually now resting her head right under the microphone. So if you hear any deep breathing, that is probably Lucy snoring. That is not me. 
Key consideration number four, be problem specific. Programs are most effective when they focus on one particular problem. We're not trying to cure everything here. Focus on, and again, this is right out of Evans-based policing as well, focus on an offender type, a location type, or an offense type. Increasing the size or scope of an identified target or having ill-defined targets can weaken the program, and in particular, weaken the deterrent message for the potential audience. This is from Braga. Got to be specific in what it is that you're focusing on. And on that, wow, we actually managed to get through this. Lucy's looking up at me like she's all, she's disappointed now because you know what that means. There's no more T-R-E-A-T-S's. And that is all. Thanks for joining me and um, I'll catch you for the next one.